All right. Well, so this is a new experience for me. Not totally new, but it's new in the sense that we have been pre-recording messages for the last, I don't know how long. And now there are people present and I am live on the internet, which is a very scary thing because you get a little comfortable with this whole pre-recording thing because sometimes I make mistakes and I can edit them out. It's not like real life. You can edit things on the internet. This is real life now, so I can't edit those out. So hopefully I won't make too many mistakes. We're in this series called Heaven, Hell, and Everything in Between. And as we've been in this series, we've been talking about the in-betweens. Like, we've been talking about ghosts. What does the Bible say about ghosts? We've been talking about, uh, last week we discussed suicide, which was a tough topic to discuss, but I think a necessary one. And what is God's view of people who take their own lives? And this week, we're going to start with those other topics, heaven and hell. But we're starting with hell. Because really, a lot of us have that question of what happens when we die. We wonder about it. I mean, the people who are in this room right now are all fairly young, so they might not be questioning it too much right now. But there comes points in our lives where some of us actually get very worried about this topic. Some of us starts at a younger age. We get a little anxious. Some of us... When we're older, we get a little wondering. What happens when we die? What does the Bible say about it? What can we know for sure about it, since no one's really been there, right? Well, there are different ideas as to what happens when you die. And so we're going to be talking specifically about the ideas of hell this week and heaven next week. And as we discuss these ideas... My goal is to ground them in what is said in Scripture, not necessarily what is taught in tradition. And the reason I say that is because that not that tradition is bad, it's just that sometimes tradition is not exactly what's said in Scripture. So what does the Scripture, what I would call the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, what does the Bible say about heaven and hell? Well, some people have decided that, well, the Bible actually doesn't say anything about it. And you might be thinking, well, how could that be? We hear about it everywhere. People talk about, you know, going to heaven, going to hell, all those kind of things. So how could that be that the Bible doesn't say anything? Well, one of the reasons why people say that is that in the Old Testament, so what would be the Hebrew scriptures, those individuals who follow Judaism, maybe aren't Christians, but us who are Christians, who have it as a root of our history of our faith, One of the reasons why people say that is that heaven and hell are not actually mentioned in the Old Testament at all. So that's caused people to wonder, well, what do people believe in that period of time and today about what happens when you die? Well, if you read through the Old Testament, there's a specific word that gets used, and that word is sheol. That word sheol often gets translated to the grave. In the Greek versions of the Old Testament, that word would be Hades that gets used, which is sometimes translated as death itself. The word Sheol is the word that gets used throughout the Old Testament to say where you go when you die. Everyone goes to Sheol. There's no exceptions. Everyone who dies goes to Sheol according to the Old Testament. But there's another statement that gets made throughout the Old Testament about what happens when people die that sometimes we miss the significance of. One of those examples is actually in Genesis 15.15. This is a point in the scripture where God is speaking to Abraham, well, Abram at this point, 
and he's made the covenant with him. A covenant being that God has this partnership with Abram that he says, some of us are familiar, Genesis 12, you know, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. I will be your God, you will be my people. And he's made this partnership with him and he reiterates it in chapter 15. And in verse 15 of chapter 15, what he says, what God says to Abram, he says, you, however, will go to your ancestors and in peace and be buried at a good old age. God says to Abram, when he dies, what's going to happen is he's going to go to his ancestors. The term that gets used over and over again in the Old Testament as to what happens when you die is you go to your ancestors. You go to the grave, and in the grave, you end up in the place where your ancestors are. So for some of us, and some people, have concluded that, well, because that's what the Old Testament says, in fact, the Old Testament says you just die, that there is no afterlife, that there is nothing after this. In fact, Jesus encountered this challenge with a group of people called the Sadducees. And one of the things that we read in the New Testament is there's two major groups in Judaism. You have the Pharisees, who are kind of the really religious uh, individuals who keep everything in the law, and then the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, their reputation is they don't keep anything, really. They just kind of do whatever they feel like and go, eh, I like this, I don't like this, I like that, whatever. And one of the things they don't believe in is in the resurrection of the dead. It comes up in the Gospels, we see Jesus encounter them and this happens. So they had the interpretation that, well, it talks about the grave and it talks about your ancestors, so it means when you die, it's just over. Nothing happens. That's a common view that a lot of people still have today. We have it in different ways. Some of us who don't believe in God at all, we say, well, you just cease to exist. Some of us find it quite meaningless. Some of us think, well, even though I do believe in God, maybe nothing happens afterwards either. But that's an unaware or uneducated, in some ways, view or understanding of what it means to go with your ancestors. See, the thing is that in the Old Testament, the understanding that the people of God had, so the people that God initially encounters in the Old Testament through Adam and Eve, through Noah, through Abram, who becomes Abraham, who he says, you are going to be my people, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless others, they had something called a covenant. So like I said, chapter 15 talks about a reiteration of the covenant God has with his people. And the covenant's purpose was to bind God and his people together with a set understanding of what the expectations are. So someone, say it's you, who is covenanted to God, would be have an understanding that God requires or asks certain things of you. And because you are covenanted to God, God has a certain responsibility and offers certain things to you when you stay faithful to it. So for Abraham and for the people of the Old Testament, when they're told you go to where your ancestors are, there are two different spots for ancestors. Those who are faithful to the covenant and those who are not part of the covenant. And so when Abram is told you will go to your ancestors when you go to the grave. You are either going to be with the God who's covenanted with you or away from that God. So in the Old Testament, there actually is a depiction and understanding of what happens in the afterlife. 
It just might not be written the way we want it to be. You are either with God or you're not. That's the option. In many ways, that's what heaven and hell are. And that's the teaching in the New Testament as well. When we transition to the New Testament, there's a lot of individuals, a lot of us kind of wonder, well, what is there about hell in it? Some of us, maybe we've, we're maybe a little bit older in our faith, we've heard a lot of sermons where people kind of scare us, and they say, hey, don't go to hell, basically, that you need to be saved, that you need to be, find that freedom in Jesus, and they kind of scare you with this image of hell as this place of great torture and torment. And more recently, there's been a lot of people who wonder, well, maybe actually that's not in the Bible at all. Now, before I get into what's in the Bible and we start looking at some of the words of something, I want us to make very, very clear. I believe in hell. I very much believe in hell. I may not necessarily believe in the traditional view, which is all about hellfire kind of coming up and tormenting you, and you're continuously punished, but I believe in a very literal understanding of what Scripture points to as hell. And my hope this morning, or if you're watching later online, my hope is to share with you what it is that I actually believe. So we're going to look at what the New Testament says about hell. Well, first thing that needs to be noted is there's two words that get used in the New Testament for the word hell. One of them only gets used once, and that is a Greek word that actually has a reference to do with Greek mythology more than anything. And the other one that gets used gets used repeatedly. It should also be noted that the word hell doesn't actually come up a whole lot in the New Testament. In fact, it comes up very few times. And not every English translation will translate the same word as hell. Some might translate it something different. But I want to look at where it does come up and what is said about hell in that context. First thing to note is that the person who talks about hell the most is Jesus. In fact, he's almost the only one who does. James mentions it once, talking about how our tongue, our words, can be a wildfire, and it can hurt someone and send them to hell. And then Peter talks about it once as well, but he uses a different word, like I said, that has more of a reference with Greek mythology. But Jesus uses a word for hell over and over again. He uses the same word every time in all of the Gospels, and there's a few different times that he uses it. The most obvious times that it comes up is actually in Matthew's Gospel. So I want to read three passages in Matthew's Gospel that use the word in our English translations. I'm using the New International Version. In our English translations that have the word hell. So we're going to start at Matthew chapter 5, which is a section called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to start at verse 22. So Matthew 5:22 says this. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Just before this, he's kind of explaining that, you know, you've heard you shouldn't kill people, well I'm going to make it even harder for you. I'm going to say when you're even angry with people, you're subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Many of us have heard this passage before, and maybe what we've heard is that when we 
do something different than what God asks of us, in this case it's actually being angry, we are potentially going to this place of fire and torment. Let's go to another verse. A little bit later, verse 30 in chapter 5. He says, and this point he's talking about adultery and how we look at people and how we shouldn't look at people lustfully. He says in verse 30, And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body to go into hell. And so again, a lot of us have heard this and understood, okay, it means to not end up in hell. If there's something about me, maybe I'm looking at somebody lustfully and I shouldn't be looking at somebody lustfully, um, I just pluck out my eye and I'll be okay. That maybe isn't exactly what's being said. We're going to jump one more time in Matthew's Gospel. We're going to jump to chapter 18. In chapter 18, verse 9, it says this. It says, if your right hand... Oops, wrong one. And if your eye causes you to stumble... Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and thrown into the fire of hell, just as the example I said before. Right? And so some of us have had this understanding, and it's been taught this way by people like me and maybe other people, that hell is this place of torment and torture where the fire is burning, and this is what we know, and so you don't want to end up there. I've known people, and maybe you are one of those people who... At some point in your life, someone said, you're in danger of going to hell, and that scared you into a belief. Now, I would never say it's a bad thing for you to believe. I think it's a very good thing. I want you to believe and follow Jesus. But the way you got there probably wasn't the best way, and maybe wasn't the most biblical either. So let's look at this word that Jesus uses that gets translated into hell. Like I said, there's a very specific word that gets used. And that word is Gehenna. Gehenna is used by Jesus and James. It's the only word they use and gets translated to hell in some of our Bibles. So Gehenna is actually something very specific. It's actually somewhere very specific. So what or where is Gehenna? Well, Gehenna is actually a place that Jesus would have seen, and something very real would be happening there. Gehenna gets translated in our Bible, if it's, you look in the Greek, it's Gehenna, it would be the Valley of Hinnom, kind of in English, and it was a very specific place. This place would be in a valley, so if we think about the Sermon on the Mount, where I read some of those passages about hell, we have this visual, maybe, of Jesus being on one of the mountain countrysides, speaking to his followers, the many of them. And when you get down from the mountain, you get into a valley that was kind of on the border of the town, kind of where nobody would want to go. And this valley of Hinnom was used hundreds of years before Jesus for child sacrifices. People would sacrifice to the god Molech children. And if you read through your Old Testament, there's two gods that get mentioned many times, Molech and Baal. And one of the things that people are told not to do is not to worship God like people worship Molech and Baal. Molech in particular expected child sacrifices. And so what they would do, they would have a very large brazen statue of this cow god, and it would have a fiery furnace underneath, and they would put 
little babies in the hands of this hot cow god, and they would burn to death. This is what people did to worship a god who was evil. Years later, that same area, as the worship of Molech died out, that same area, because it was considered tainted, it was considered wrong, it became a space where people would throw bodies of people who've committed crimes. So if someone did something bad, like they killed somebody else, and they were sentenced to death, they would be killed. One of the things that they would do in ancient times is they would not honor them with a burial, so they would take their bodies and throw it into a fire in this valley of Hinnom, where those who did wrong would have their physical bodies put in and burned. It would be considered the best thing to do because they didn't think these people deserved anything better. So when Jesus is speaking on this mountainside to his followers, and he's telling them that it is better, it is better for you to cut off a hand and throw it into Gehenna than it is for all of you to end up in Gehenna, he's talking about a very specific place where sinfulness was considered to go on earth. That's not to say that he's not speaking about something for eternity as well. But the imagery that is coming up in Scripture is not what we think of when we think of hell. In fact, when we think of hell, the thing we, or the person we are most influenced by is Dante Alighieri in his, uh, his epic poem, uh, The Inferno. He had this vision that there were nine circles of hell, and each one is for a different sin, and ultimately it's the worst possible spot, and that's where the devil was at the bottom. And each of these circles of hell, depending on what your sin is, whether it is uh, to steal, whether it is to lie, whether it is to commit adultery or have lust, whatever your sin is, gluttony, all these things, there is a different spot for you to experience torment in the afterlife. There was also a spot where people who weren't so bad could end up, where it's just not great, but it's not really you know, what you want to be in. This imagery that came out of this poem, this Italian author's poem, has probably been the most influential thing in all of Christian history on what we define hell as. It was after his explanation, and it was a beautiful uh, poetry that he also talks about the in-between stages of life and death and also paradise or heaven. There's great imagery there, but it's a work of art. It's not Scripture. And so what Scripture speaks of is not exactly the same thing that this work of art does. What Scripture speaks of when it speaks of hell is a concept that has to go back to going to be where your ancestors are. When we experience hell, we are experiencing a separation from God. That's what Scripture, my understanding of Scripture, and I have a lot to learn, I know I do, but my understanding of the history and the place and the time that this was written in, that Jesus encountered humanity, my understanding of the language that gets used my understanding of it is that hell is not this place of eternal fire, but it's a place of eternal separation. So I believe in hell in the fact that it is a place where you will get to where you are separated from the God who loves you, and there's nothing good outside of God. 
That's what hell is. The sad part is, a lot of us already experience hell. A lot of us already feel separated from God. A lot of us make decisions in our daily lives that move us further and further away from the God who wants to be in covenant, in relationship with us. The God who wants us to go where our ancestors are, who are with him in eternity. But a lot of us choose not to. So every day, some of us choose hell. It's not that God sends us to this eternal place of torment, but every day we slowly make choices that separate us more and more from the God who wants to spend eternity with us. That is hell. That is hell. And some of you are experiencing it right now. The good news is it doesn't have to be for eternity. In fact, God has made a way for us to not experience hell, not experience that separation from God forever. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this, and this to me is, is part of the message that we need to know. Speaking of Jesus, he writes this, he says, He came and preached peace to you, in chapter 2, verse 18, He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. So Jesus came, so Jesus walked the earth. The same Jesus who is talking to his followers and says, it is better for you to cut off your hand and throw it in this fiery pit than for you to live in eternity without a God. He says he came to speak peace to those who were far from God and those who were close to God. He came for everyone. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So through him, you and I, everybody has access to that God who has promised this covenant to Abram and his people to say, you will be my people and I will be your God and you will be with your ancestors who are with me. That God we have access to through Jesus. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul understood this and wanted us to understand this. When we were far from God, when we had this very real potential experience of hell, this separation from God, Jesus came to bring us peace, bring us closer. When we were close to God, Jesus came to bring us even closer. Jesus came to bring you, to bring me, to bring everybody closer to God to have this covenant relationship so that we don't have to worry about eternity. And in him, all of us have that access. It is our gift that's been given to us, a gift from God that we do not have to feel like outsiders, like foreigners and strangers, he says, but you are fellow citizens, means you're part of this family now. 
You're part of this family that's built on this teaching that the followers of Jesus have had for history. Your ancestors have had. You are part of this family, and you don't have to worry about eternity anymore. Because God came to give you peace through Jesus and an eternity with him. You do not have to worry about hell if you find yourself in Christ. Because you are brand new in Christ. Your eternity is secure to be with your ancestors, those who've been covenanted, connected in relationship to God through Christ for eternity. Hell is real, but it might not be what you've always thought it was. In fact, it might be something you could be experiencing right now, but you don't have to experience it. You can make that choice to come to the Father, through Christ, the one who came to give you life in all of its fullness, to forgive you of your sins, to offer you an opportunity to be brand new. In Christ, you have nothing to fear, but that's only in Christ. I pray for you, pray for all of us, that we understand we don't have to experience the separation anymore. That this eternity away from God doesn't have to be your eternity. God wants you. And God made a way for you to be with him forever. Maybe you need to invite or accept that invitation that he's given you for the first time or just be reminded of it today. Wherever you are, I want to pray for you that you know that this invitation is yours, and it's yours for the taking, and you have nothing to fear if you take it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who has not put up a wall between us and you, but if anything, broke down a wall. That through Christ, we have been given access to eternity that we don't have to fear an eternity of punishment or fire because that's not what you offer us. You offer us a hope and a paradise. And you offer it through Christ and only through Christ. Father, I pray for us that uh, those of us who maybe are not aware of how close you are or what you've done for us, that Holy Spirit, we open our hearts and our minds to you right now. Maybe we need to call out to you whether it is in the quiet or in the loud voice, to call out to you and say, I want you to be my God. Jesus, you are Lord. And then when we enter into this covenant, this relationship, just as you would promise people long ago since the beginning, you have an expectation for us, but you offer us something great in return. Help us to live like people of this covenant. People that... Jesus, you died for, because you said we were worth it. God, we need your Holy Spirit to prompt us, to encourage us, to make that choice, to call out to you, to not live and experience the hell that so many of us experience today in separation from you, and to not experience it for an eternity. And God, I also pray that we love people enough to show them that they don't have to experience that hell either.
Help us to share the hope that you offer us with everyone we can in every way we can. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.